Hey guys, on this episode of The Ethics Experts, we're talking to Ross Ronan of Ronan Healthcare Consulting. Uh, this guy is an absolute unicorn. Uh, so much great advice, so many cool frameworks that he talks about. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it and I hope you can learn how to move from being a compliance officer to a compliance executive. See you soon. Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, Bestie, you have an amazing smile and the world's a better place because you're in it. You see what happens when you subscribe to The Ethics Experts? You get a bonus greeting on every episode. So why have you not subscribed yet? Let's go. I am here with Ross Ronan, who is a principal and co-founder of uh, Ronan uh, Compliance Consulting. How's it going, buddy? Good, man. How are you? It's nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. So you have such a really cool story. I've been excited to get you on here for a while. Um, I'd love to kind of just, why don't we kind of frame out what you do for uh, ethics and compliance departments or how you kind of bring those functions to bear. And then we can kind of circle back to your story because your story is freaking crazy. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, so Ronan Healthcare Consultants, we developed uh, in 2019. And the idea was to really bring um, compliance consulting and building compliance departments to healthcare uh, organizations, whether they're practices or hospitals or whatever it may be, that are really struggling to create a compliance program, don't really know where to start, really don't know how to do it, don't have these incredibly huge budgets like a like an HCA or a tenant or whatever it may be. Um, and I was a compliance officer for 20 years at one of those uh, kind of larger healthcare organizations. And we really wanted to bring that compliance expertise to them to say, this is how we do it. This is how we build those programs. So our primary objective is really to come in to these organizations, stand in as their chief compliance officer on an interim basis, and really build that infrastructure of a best-in-class compliance program so they can grow. They can go grow their business. They can focus on what they need to focus on as CEOs and boards of directors, and they don't have to worry about all the other compliance issues that are going on. They can sleep well at night, and they can protect their investments. So that was our that was our really our, our main focus behind what we do, and we've got pillars uh, that we treat for every one of our clients, and it's expertise, dependability, and dedication. And that's what we provide to all of our, our clients out there. So. so how has that journey been? I mean, that was probably a pretty scary jump to make into kind of starting your own business. And then now you're like standing there, you got your shingle, you got your website. And it's like, all right, where's the money? Like you've talked to us about like what made you make that jump and what those first kind of six, nine months looked like for you. No, it was it's a co-partnership, right? So I'm a co-founder of, of Ronan Healthcare Consultants, and, and the other one is my is my wife. So she runs all the operations. I do all the consulting work of it. Um, and it's actually been a great uh, partnership to be able to do that. Uh, and she comes from an education background, so doesn't really have a lot of uh, you know experience in the compliance realm. So when we did this, um, fortunately, is kind of an interesting story. Um, we had a, a private equity group reach out to me. They had a, actually a headhunter reach out to me as I was chief compliance officer over one of the, the bigger organizations. And they said, hey, we want you to come be our compliance officer for this very small dental services organization in California and like 16 clinics or 12 clinics or something or 12 offices or whatever it may be. And I said, okay, I you might want to call somebody else on that one because I, I you know, we have 70,000 employees at my current job. And, and we started to get to talking about it. And I said, look, how would you like something like a fractional? Because I think that's probably within more of your budget. And we can come and build this thing the way that you want it to be built. Um, next thing I know, the headhunter is putting me in touch with the head of the private equity firm. And the rest is kind of history from that standpoint. And that was even before I left the other organization. Um, the, it presented itself to me as an opportunity. And I'm like, absolutely. They were one of our first clients. And we just kind of hit the hit the ground running. It wasn't really very hard to, to go out and get clients because they were just knocking on our door. So it was great. That's phenomenal. Um, it's nice when you can get that sort of first springboard you know, that first kind of launch forward. And then, you know, it can give you, um, it can give you that like sure footing to like roll the dice and really kind of get it going. So, you know, I think you have a, you, you know, maybe we should, yeah, let's, let's talk about this now. I think you have like a, a unique approach to putting these programs in place and you have a different sort of prioritization, you know, relative to sort of, you know, I've seen some folks come in and they just kind of take the seven elements or whatever, and they just sort of start, start going down, down the line. 
Talk to us about your kind of philosophy. You know, those values are phenomenal, but like, what's the philosophy? And, you know, when you're coming in and you're standing something up, you got to get a lot of bang for your buck, first of all. And I think you have to kind of take this risk-based approach, second of all. And um, I don't know, third of all, you probably need to be able to show some like tangible progress, especially in the eyes of perhaps a, you know, leadership team that doesn't, you know, get it. So how do you kind of solve for that? No, those are all great points. You know, um, when the Department of Justice came out with their guidance uh, a couple of years ago, um, it really solidified my philosophy in compliance programs. It's really about having this living, breathing thing as opposed to something you just stick on a shelf, right? And there's a lot of times where I see a lot of compliance programs, a lot of compliance consultants or officers say, hey, by the way, here's your compliance plan. Let's check the box on all your policies. Let's check the box. Oh, you set up your 1-800 number, so that's great. Um, and then we stick it on the shelf, right? And then at the end of the day, you've got this compliance program that's just on a shelf, but it doesn't do anything. It right. doesn't It doesn't breathe, right? And the Department of Justice, when they came out and put out that guidance, really clarified that it actually has to do something. And so I was really appreciative when it did, because that's been our philosophy. Um, so when we start to build these compliance programs, the first thing that we do is we say, what are the things that we need to operate a compliance program from day one while we're building the infrastructure around the rest of the pieces in the seven elements? So you always hear the adage, you, you build the plane while you're flying it. It's exactly what we do, right? We've got to have an operational compliance program. So the first things that we look at are leadership, because we have to have somebody functioning, making decisions within the organization, usually a compliance officer and an executive compliance committee. Those are the first things that we set, we stand up. And when you do that, you actually are putting your executive team on notice that they are going to be part of the solution of this compliance program because they're all going to sit on this, right? <laughs> and I always tell them, I'm like, you have a dog in this hunt and you're going to be making decisions with us as a compliance department. We're not going to be making all the decisions. We're going to be doing it together. And once they do that, they're all, they'll buy into it and they will support whatever you're going down that road. The second thing is near and dear to your heart, um, we call it a disclosure program, but it really is that hotline, that web intake board, the way you can reach out to the organization and to the patients out there to be able to get information into the compliance program. It is a pivotal step. And, you know, we work together quite a bit um, on this and, and it's number one thing that we do because what we don't know are the things that will hurt us and we need to know everything that is out there. So. Having a disclosure program, having a hotline, having web and tech portal, having a case management system on the back end of it is imperative, right? It's just absolutely you have to have it. Uh, and then thirdly, we we do auditing and monitoring. We want to pick up rocks. We want to look and see what's underneath it. We got to set that thing up first while we're building everything else. A lot of people want to come in and put policies and procedures in, in place first. Uh, we interview people to come on to Ronan to, to work with us. And I ask them, what's the most important element that you want to start with? And if they start off with policies and procedures and training and education, I'm like, next, can I have a different, can I have a different applicant here? Because I don't want to start with that. That's the end product of everything else that we're doing. And then we can throw those policies out there because they'll change. Why do people get that wrong though? Is it because it's easier? Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's easy. Right. And people think that compliance programs are policies, <laughs> are training and policies. And I find them to be the policies different. But training and education, I find to be the one of the least most effective things that we have to do in the compliance program. The most effective thing that we can do is be available, be responsive and open our doors to answer questions. That is what we should be doing versus worrying about all this other kind of training stuff. I'm probably so who tricked everybody? <laughs> tricked us? Was it the uh, was it like the training industry tricked us? Was it just we just uh, you know the wisdom of the lemmings? You know, like what? I mean, because everything you're saying is near and dear to my heart. It makes a lot of sense. I think we're in a game of, of influence. We're in a game of uh, driving behaviors. Those are probably not going to be driven. You know, we're in a game of trying to get risk intelligence from our workforce. Right? We're trying to get all of these. You know, what's actually going on um, out there? We're not in a game of training. We're just not. So where yeah. where where do you think you got hoodwinked? 
<laughs> it's funny because, uh, you know, I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot here because we do provide training and we do sell the training too. So it's not like I don't want to do it. I just think it's a, a, a last on the list piece of it. Um, and by the way, everybody who's listening, I do love the OIG. But when the OIG created their guidance as it relates to compliance program, the idea is if you don't tell people or train people on what they can and can't do, i.e. policies and procedures, relevant laws, whatever it may be, how do you hold them accountable for applying that training, right? And so that's the idea behind it, and I get it. But the reality of it is, is I'd rather them come talk to me. I'd rather have ultimate, you know, multiple conversations, open conversations, and have a, a open lines of communication be my number one thing. And then we can train on everything else later. I have never, other than being under a corporate integrity agreement, have the government come in and go, uh, you didn't do your training and that's why you got in trouble and you get fines for not doing your training. It just doesn't happen that way. The training is a byproduct of something else that goes wrong. And then you have to go, oh, well, we didn't do training. You know, that's We can fix this with some, with some good training. So. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just to kind of say it again, we're not saying, or you're not saying that like training has no place. It's just not the first, you know, from a Pareto or from an 80, 20 rule, that's not the thing that's going to give you the most bang for your buck or the most impact for your time. Uh, that's a little bit lower on the list. Exactly. Um, talk, talk to me about why the policies thing is also lower on the list. Because I really believe you have to develop policies that are very specific to the organization and the risk factors of that organization. And you don't know what you don't know until you start picking up rocks, right? And you start opening the door and having people come in and ask you questions so that you can develop those those policies you know, that are more relevant to the organization. Once you start putting policies and procedures out there that are irrelevant to the organization, who, who don't, you know, doesn't meet the specialty that you that you're you're operating in your compliance credibility goes down a notch, right? They go, you're not telling me things I need to know. You're just telling me stuff that you want me to do. And it has to be relevant. So we put the policies and procedures. There's a few of them that are, you know, normal that are templated that you put out there, right? That you start off with. But we really focus that on the later part of our build so that so that we are relevant policies and procedures. They get it, they understand it, and they really meet the gold standard of what they need to do. So yeah, because um the policy, you can't just grab one and just throw it out to everyone. Every business is going to be sort of different. And then you also have all these different groups within the organization that, you know, different policies may or may not apply to, or they need to be explained a little bit differently or tweaked and so forth. And it's hard to to your point, understand all of that sort of three-dimensional nuance uh, on day one. You know, it's easy to go to ChatGPT and say, give me a policy book, but That's how relevant is that going to be and how germane to the actual risk factors that an organization is dealing with? Um, it's probably not, you know. Exactly. And, and you know, one of the one of the underrated things that compliance officers have not been doing over the years is updating their policies every year. Right. Um, we make it a pro we make it a, a process to say review and revise every policy every year. If you can revise them, that's great. But you have to review them every year and take notes of what it is, because that's how it stays relevant and it stays relevant within you. And if you need to get rid of one, it's a client talk to today. Like, what do we do with my COVID policy? What do I do with my COVID policy that I put into place over the last three years for the for the uh, the the public health emergency? What do I do now? And I'm right. like, get rid of it. This doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't. It, you know, let figure out a process to get rid of it. You have to review and revise them all the time to make sure that they're still relevant. Do you find guys are kind of scared to do that, or do you find that they're like reticent to like throw a policy out because we spent so much time on it? Like, it doesn't feel like there's like a healthy policy respiration. In general, it feels like it just kind of goes one way and it just kind of gets added, 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 added. You know, it's like you just keep tacking on more stuff. Do you feel that like do you find that? And why do you think that is if you do? Um, we do see that a lot because I think there's a philosophy out there that says the more policies that you have, the better compliance program that you have, um, which I disagree with wholeheartedly. Um, I figure you have good 10 policies that are on point and relevant and they make sense and they're not 50 pages each that they actually people will read them and, and abide by them. So so we will see a lot of people just add, add, add. Um, when we come in and, and build these programs, we make it so that 
the compliance program reviews and revise them every year, like I said, but then presents them to the executive compliance committee with a summary to say, these are the ones I want to remove. These are the ones I want to keep. And they have to do this every year to make sure that they're up to speed and make sure that their compliance program is up to date. So we make this review process with the executive compliance committee routine um, on an annual basis so that you can clean those up. And then what do you think about, um, like, is it important and maybe, Maybe I'm about to ask you a question that I learned from you. So uh, <laughs> take that as a compliment. Okay. But like, do you think it's important to have some kind of a log of just like what you're doing all the time and the like this the decisions you're making to say, okay, this was our old policy. We got rid of our COVID policy due to X, Y, and Z reasons, and just kind of keep that going because you know, there's so much turnover. It's hard to keep track of our like decisions over time. I mean, this is kind of a, a Ray Dalio thing. This, you know, that that book principles of really kind of documenting your thought process along the way so you can go back and learn and so forth. How do you, if you think that's important and if assuming I did steal it from you, how do you help <laughs> folks to, uh, to uh, like, how do you, how do you functionally do that? Is that a spreadsheet? Is that just a word document that lives on the drive? It's it's funny that you ask that. Like I said, I spent 20 years as a compliance officer and didn't have something to track all this. When I started this this company, um, one of the first things we did is put in a project management system to be able to track everything that we do from that perspective. And it is a game changer. It is a game changer for us. And with all of our clients, we put it into place for all of our clients and say, you will follow this because I'm telling you, you will get lost. Right. right? So you know, another good book, Checklist Manifesto, love that book. It's, you know, all about doing things in a certain category and in, in, in process. And that's the whole thing about like a project management system. We don't use Excel files. I know a lot of people do that. We use, um, we use Asana, but we've tried them all Monday and, and you know, Basecamp and all those other ones. Um, but we love it. I think it's great. And then you have to combine that with a phenomenal case management system like you guys have with my sim um, to be able to track your incidents and things that are happening, plus your daily operations with a compliance program through a great project management system. Those are the two tools that I think are absolutely irreplaceable within a compliance. Yeah. Absolutely. And you can always download and someone goes, what do you do? And I go, here it is right here, right? I can show you right here and I can download it. And actually we provide those to our executive compliance committee meetings every quarter. Like this is where we're at. This is what we're doing, just so you know. Well, and then that information kind of communicates two messages. You know what I'm saying? One is like, yeah, here's, here's the actual list of what I'm doing, but it also communicates like, wow, I'm totally on top of it. I have some structure to what I'm doing. I'm not just sort of like wandering across this landscape of risk. I'm targeting my, my specific goals and I'm making tangible progress on those things, you know? Yeah. Additionally, um, we see a lot of compliance programs want to just be reactive. I'm yeah, going right. to sit over here until something happens and then you call me and I try to fix it. Right. And we we go, look, no, we need to be proactive. You're always going to be reactive because stuff's always going to happen. Right. But we want to be proactive. And how do you be proactive without your steps and your list and everything that you're going to do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? And so that proactivity is really where those checklists and those project management softwares really help. Um, I'd love to kind of dive into, you know, uh, you've, you know, you've worked in a massive organization and I'd like to get to that story at some point, but you have this really unique perspective because you've taken these years of experience at a massive organization where there have been, you know, a ton of regulations. You talked about a, a, a DPA or, you know, I think that's what you said. You, you were under at some point, was it a DPA or was it a CIA. corporate integrity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a CIA. So you're under a CIA, you went through acquisitions, like you kind of seen it all. And now you're able to take this, you know, you know, this mountain of, of experience and apply it in, you know, all these different situations. And sometimes I think you're coming in and you're setting something up and there's nobody there. And sometimes there is perhaps a team there that you're helping to augment. I want to talk a little bit about like what you think traditional, uh, you know, uh, legacy, whatever vestigial compliance mentalities like get wrong. Like, what do you consistently see that people think about their job in the wrong way? You kind of alluded to one just now of, you know, guys are just, they kind of set themselves up to be reactionary. One I see all the time is they literally think of themselves as a cost center. I might have a looser definition, but like, I don't think that it's a cost center. I think that, that it helps create a ton of value in the organization. So what are, you know, you know, feel free to like dive into those two or just talk about some of the other, like, you know, high level 
you know, uh, misconceptions that people have about their role, their job, their department, the function, the value it provides to the organization? What we see is, let's just take, for example, somebody who does have a compliance program or had a compliance program that has um, been ineffective, we'll call it ineffective uh, as, a, as a word. Um, what we see and what we really try to promote with our compliance officers and coaching with compliance officers and all of those things that we provide is turning your compliance officer into a compliance executive. And those are two different things, right? There's a compliance officer who's going to do the day-to-day and, and really you know, be resistant to change or resistant to growth or all of those kind of things. But we want to create compliance executives that will change the industry, right? And that means that you're a strategic partner to the CEOs, to the CFOs, to the board of directors. You're sitting around your strategic management table. They're having conversations about how they grow and they turn over and they go, hey, Ross, what do you think? You think we can do this? And you're like, yeah, maybe not that way, but we can do it this way. And I think you can get there within these regulations. And I think we just need to build some, some, um, some guardrails for you, right? And so oftentimes what I do see is that whether it's um, an older, someone, I mean, I've been in compliance for a long time, so I've seen a lot. People who have come in and say, I'm the compliance officer, hear me roar, right? I'm a hammer, I'm looking for a nail, and I'm going to walk around and I'm going to try to start slamming everything that I possibly can because I am the compliance officer, I report to the board. And, and what we see is a lot of damage being done from those types of compliance officer positions. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to come in and unwind that a little bit. And, and sometimes the organizations go, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not, you're not reviewing everything that I'm doing. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because you, this is your job. I'm empowering you to do your job. And I'm empowering you to make compliance decisions. If you have a question, please give me a call and we can walk through it. But I, I often see that is the biggest problem we have is this culture of compliance where I am the roadblock. I am the gate keeper, you go through me for everything. And that's just not how you build an effective compliance program within the organization. And it really harms the profession and it really harms the organization. Well, I love that distinction between officer and executive because an executive can't be doing all that stuff. An executive has to empower people in their organization to think in the right way and act in the right way in pursuit of the organization's mission. Do you think that, you know, we kind of like it, we kind of like being the roadblock or do you think like they feel like they need to be the roadblock? Like what's at the root of it? Is it is it a control thing? Is it a fear thing? It's an empowerment. It's an empowerment and control thing. And one of the things that that I've often struggled with over the years is when the OIG, Federal Sensing Guidelines, Farm Justice, whoever have come up with all the guidance related to what a compliance program needs, they have developed this thing called a compliance officer, right? And probably the worst thing that you could have probably named this because an officer in a company means your your chief executive officer, chief financial, chief legal officer, right? It means something in a governance standpoint. You hold a position, you have have all these things. Compliance officer is just a name, right? Nine times out of 10, they're not an officer of their organization. They're not covered under their DNO insurance. They're not anything like that. They're just a position, right? But they think they have a compliance officer name and therefore I'm entitled to run this thing, right? And, and I see that a lot. Um, and, and, and I fought my entire career to get that out of being this kind of compliance officer role into this compliance executive. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that is kind of, you know, crazy, right? Like, especially when there's like maybe a VP of legal that the chief compliance officer reports to. That seems yeah. like and a little upside down or something. Their name. Yeah. And they have an officer in their name. They're like, well, you're not really an officer. Like, no, it says right there in my title. I'm an officer. <laughs> like, no, you're not. <laughs> right. so it, it, it's, it's, it's a very weird dichotomy for sure. Yeah. And that, and that definitely creates confusion. <laughs> um, what do you think about this cost center thing? Cause I've had a bunch of debates about it and I guess it technically is because it's not generating revenue, but how do you look at that, at that thing? Um, you know, my, my, Initial response is always it is a cost center, um, but so is the legal department, so is human resources, so is quality, so is everything. But the byproducts of every one of those departments 
have something beneficial for the organization so that the organization can do better, right? So that they can grow, so that they can provide great patient care, so that they can be the best organization that they can possibly be. They can't do it without the support of compliance, legal, HR, quality, right? We all have our, we all have our um, benefits to the organization, but it's just something that they have to have. And it is a cost center. So for compliance side of it, you know, they're just really hard to say what the ROI is, right? And and you can say, well, nothing happened. <laughs> well, okay, you can't prove a negative, right? This doesn't mean anything from that perspective. But reputationally, it really does make a difference because we work with a lot of private equity groups. We've worked with a lot of uh, different healthcare companies who want to sell or want to grow or be consolidated with somebody else. And they look at their compliance program because that's what we do too. We do some due diligence for, for a lot of these groups. And we say, yes, they're good because they have a program that prevents, detects, and mitigates things. So you know what you're getting into. And therefore, there is an ROI on that standpoint because they're like, wow, we have invested in this. Totally. And now we're gonna, like, we're going to consolidate. We're going to grow. We're going to do all these things. And payers love us. CMS loves us. The OIG loves us private equity loves it, whatever it may be, it actually will produce an ROI. But that's an event that needs to happen. It's really hard to do it on a day-to-day basis, right? And that that's really where it becomes more of a conversation. Yeah, that's true. I guess I think a good analogy is like house flipping. You know, if you flip a house and it's like Great. shag carpet and old appliances and, you know, yellow walls and all that kind of stuff, you're going to make a thousand different changes to that house that yeah. are all going to ultimately translate into, hopefully if you've made the right bets, are going to all translate into a higher cost per square foot, right? That's your sort of ROI for those investments. But I don't think anyone is kind of trying to deconstruct that and say, well, what's the ROI on these new cabinet poles? You know what I'm saying? Like you're not doing that, you know, you're, you, you know, you, you're kind of making this confluence of bets. And what's interesting is that, you know, flipping a house is definitely like a complex project. That's a, there's a, there's a bunch of little bets that you're making that you think are going to translate into a higher cost per square foot or some kind of a return. How much more complex is like flipping a company, like way more complex. (laughs) It's way more complex than picking out new carpet and new like wall colors. Um, and yet there's this sort of pressure and I'm not saying that this pressure shouldn't be there. I'm just saying it exists. This pressure that people feel individually, or maybe, and and it might stem from the pressure that maybe leadership feels uh, in total to like show positive ROIs for all those individual decisions where sometimes it's just really hard to do. Like what's the ROI of, you know, back to the cabinet polls example, what's the ROI of putting new crown mold- molding in a room? Like it's hard to to make that distinction, but you know, well, if I just do all of these things and it feels coherent and it feels consistent, then there's going to be that return on my, you know, cost per square foot for this example. No, it's a great it's a great example. So let's say you do put crown molding up into this house that you're trying to flip, and the first person walks in and doesn't really notice the crown molding, but just gets this really good feel about what it feels like to be in this space, and because it's the crown molding, right? And and you don't know what exactly what is making you feel that way, but that makes you want to buy the house. It's the same thing with compliance, right? You just walk in and you're like, "Hey, I know that they're doing these things over there." I don't know if it's a disclosure program or whatever it may be, but I know that they're doing that and I feel very comfortable about it. Therefore, I want to buy it, right? And it's the same kind of concept. You may not know the crown molding, but you know this feeling that you feel good in this place and you feel comfortable you know, buying it, essentially. And I just think if we as uh, ethics and compliance teams can have that same confidence that we would have in house flipping to say like, yeah, we're definitely doing crown molding and I absolutely have to repaint these cabinets and get new cabinet pulls on here. Like, because you know, in your heart that that is going to translate into this, this better outcome. We need to be able to have that same energy and confidence in our corporate conversations, because not everybody at the executive level is going to appreciate the crown molding or is going to appreciate, you know, the, uh, the cabinet pulls from anthropology or whatever. I don't know what it is, but like, but like, we know we have to change all these things and we know that like, it has to be consistent. You can't have really modern walls, really modern appliances and like shag carpeting. That's bizarre, right? Like that, that could break the whole thesis as it is. Um, how do we get people to have more of that confidence uh, as they're trying to persuade internally, because that, that man, that just seems to fall so flat for guys. It's like such a flat tire. 
It's, it's the difference between being a compliance officer and a compliance executive. Um, a compliance executive can have that conversation as a strategic partner. And you haven't put all the roadblocks in place so that the company can't do what it needs to do. And they listen to you. And they listen to you of what that can be, they being CEOs and CFOs and the boards of directors, because you're coming to the table as a strategic partner going, these are the benefits that we see from it. I got this. I'm protecting you. Your investment is protected. We are comfortable here. Go do your work, right? And then once you become that compliance executive, you can have those conversations about what that ROI is, as opposed to just saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. The other thing too is as a compliance executive, um, it's very important that I see a lot of compliance programs, speaking of cost centers and, and ROI, through a lot of human resource at a compliance program. And I don't know if it's the same kind of thing where we have this old school compliance officer mentality where I, the more people I have, the more important I have or whatever it may be, right? I've had 20 people reporting to me. So it's great. I've got a great compliance program. Um, not necessarily true, right? What we want to see is the fact that you have good processes in place. And once you become more effective in your in your in your processes and and how you're doing things, and it becomes more cost effective too. So do you need a two, three, four million dollar compliance budget? Probably not. How do you set up your processes and use outsource outside uh resources to be able to to augment it? That's a better ROI. It's a better cost center reduction, and you can show that you're you're doing it from a from an efficiency standpoint. Yeah, and you can be more tactical, and you can you know really get more things done. You know, it's a it's a more flexible approach for sure. Um, but I just find it I just find that interesting that like inability to articulate it, and, and and maybe it's kind of this black and white thinking that a lot of that might be rooted down into like the sort of average personality type. I think you're probably not the average personality type in the compliance space. I think you're someone who's a little bit more comfortable with risk. You're a little bit more comfortable in the gray. You're a little bit more comfortable kind of like making bets, um, which I think what is what everybody at the board and the executive level are doing every single day because nobody can see in, you know, in the future. We're all kind of walking backwards through life, looking at our past and hoping that we don't bump into something, you know? How do we help somebody who really gravitates toward or finds so much comfort in the black and white idness that comes along with a regulation where everything's articulated? How do we help them build that kind of a muscle to exist better in the gray and start to show more of that like executive prowess? I don't want to call it president presence. I think it's more of like a prowess and an ability to sort of, you know, live in that gray and be comfortable in it and provide guidance and advisory, you know, uh, advisory services, so to speak. Uh, or advice, I guess, is the word, uh, provide advice that is actually actionable by the organization that doesn't feel like that impediment. Yeah, you know, regulations aren't black and white. I mean, they never are, right? Everything is in the gray zone, and um, except for, you know, giving brown paper bags of money to people for referrals, right? That's just, that's a no, right? That's always a no from that perspective. So um, if that question ever comes up, there is no gray area on that. Right. Um, but but from the standpoint of a compliance individual, um, it's a measurement of risk, right? And I think that is the biggest piece that we need to, to take into account because the company has to decide what the risk factors are, or actually the compliance program can decide what the risk factors are. And then you have conversations with the leadership about what risk tolerance it, it may be, right? Associated with each individual action. Like I said, of course, there's always a, a no. And of course, there's always a yes. And then somewhere in the middle is a, is a, is a designation of risk. And so when I say the leadership, when I say the executive compliance committee, that's what I'm talking about. You bring those risk levels to that, you bring them to the board, and you have that conversation about what degrees and levels of risk that you're willing to take, and what are your recommendations as a compliance executive to, to be able to manage it. I really look at defensibility. Um, how can I defend this? Can I defend this as good care? Can I defend this as being something that that the the company is going to be a better steward of healthcare in the future? And if if so, then yes, then the risk is probably lower from that standpoint because I think it's defensible. Okay, so that's a good framework. Um, I just find uh, I don't know. Just I find that some folks are just like better at saying, you know, you can do this, you can do this. I would do this. Uh, versus others that are just like, they're just a little bit 
kind of more scared to like hop into that conversation or hop into that pool. How did you develop that, this, this prowess that we're talking about here? Did you, do you feel like you've always kind of been that way? Has it been through some experiences? Can you think back to like a light bulb moment where you're like, okay, this game is really not about winning every single hand, but I just need to win the tournament. You know, like what is, what has that path been like? You know, I, I think that it would be um, great mentors that I had, um, whether it was a great general counsel, which I had a great general counsel or a great CEO who would sit down and we talk through what each issue is and they would push me on it. Say, no, really, what's the risk factor here? What's the risk factor here? What's the risk? Because everybody comes out of the gate saying, no, you can't do it. No, you can't do it. No, you can't do it as a client's person, right? And I think it's really the leadership. And if you have good leadership or good mentors, whether it's a compliance consultant or a general counsel or a CEO or a board member who says, Let's think about all these aspects of it and what happens down the road, the ramifications from them. Then you start to develop these skills where you're looking at that at first instead of at the end of it with your mentors. You're like, I'm going to bring this to the table. These are the five things that's going to happen. Right. And then and then these are the decisions that we made. Right. So it's, you know, the one three one rule. Right. One problem. Restate what it is come up with three good possible answers and then one final recommendation, right? The one, three, run rule. We use it with our company right here. And I use it for every, every risk issue that comes up in the compliance program, right? So you come up with a great three. Freaking awesome. Yeah. The one, three, one rule is super powerful. So it's, it's, you know, one problem, three, like potential ways to look at it. And then here's the recommendation. Yeah. That's smart. Here's your one solution. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Please. (laughs) Which Dan Martell, no, it's great. Dan Martell, it's uh, by Back Through Time. Great, uh, great oh, okay. book, great mentor, uh, you know, part of his executive team, uh, coaching stuff. And he goes through the one three one rule and, and we use it quite a bit. So it's great. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, it's kind of interesting that sometimes these like these risk roles understand risk at a lower level than somebody at like an executive level. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, I've talked to guys on the on our board, for example, who are like, I just think great business people, they've seen it all. They very quickly can like get down to the issue, even without knowing the nuance of our market and stuff like that. Do you think that that's just from like, you know, I don't know if you grew up on a ranch, you can just kind of ride ride any horse. Or do you think it's, it's something that like can actually be developed? Because what I see is that a lot of compliance folks, they go to a conference or they read some guidance or they go to a webinar and they're like, okay, cool. You know, apply this sort of blindly to my, well, we need a, you know, I don't know, we need a, an anti-bribery policy. And it's like, well, we don't even exist in any sort of high risk bribery, you know, countries. And we don't even have an external sales force or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we, how do we help folks like look at these, these things that are available or these things that are out in the sort of ethosphere, so to speak, and, you know, be a little bit more, um, you know, intentional or like a little bit more sort of customized with how those those apply in pursuit of that sort of more holistic, you know, risk framework that most executives are able to, you know, have a lot of fluency with. I I believe that not everybody is meant to be a compliance officer. And whether they think they can learn it or develop it, I think it takes a special kind of person uh, to be a compliance executive, right? Critical thinker, you know, fast on their feet. They make decisions quickly. They they process everything within a matter of minutes. You know, every time we hire somebody or do stuff within our company, we use personality tests. You know, Enneagram, we'd love that. We'd like to see how people think and collaborate, collaborate with each other. And I don't think everybody's just meant to be a compliance person, just like everybody's not meant to be a CEO, right? Um, you have lots of failed CEOs out there who don't really know what they're doing from that perspective. And then, you know, it's a Peter principle, right? Where you're you're getting promoted to beyond your belief, beyond your abilities, and you're right. going to fail. And so I think it takes the person, a special person to be a compliance executive. And when I meet the people that I don't think can do it, I'm like, you should find a new profession because compliance will eat you up. It will eat you up and spit you out <laughs> because it will. you'll hate it every day if it's not your passion. People run away from you. People don't like what you have to say. It's always sometimes bringing bad news to people and you're never the most popular person in the, in the room, right? And if you don't like what you do, then go find a new profession. And if you can't learn how to identify risk and be able to present that to the powers that be and be able to explain it out, 
you probably need to try a new profession. So. Yeah, that's a, that's like a brutal truth, but that's probably right. You know, I see some people that really kind of thrive in the gray of it and they, um, they like being able to identify those risks. You know, again, I love this kind of dichotomy between a compliance officer and a compliance executive. It's, uh, consider it stolen because I think that is so smart. Okay. (laughs) There's a bunch of LinkedIn posts out there already. I've done a bunch of them. So you can can steal it. I'll tag you. Okay. (laughs) But it, but it's, uh, it's right. I think a lot of people, you know, I think it's, and it's like this for kind of, for kind of everything. I kind of, uh, I hated chemistry in class and I had a buddy who just loved it and he thrived in it and he was getting all A's and I would have like all this anxiety. I just wasn't really built for it or it never clicked for me or I never kind of was able to define myself by it. And I think that that's true. I think a lot of, you know, you see a lot of people that are like, you know, they struggle in it. And then you see other people that are thriving in it and they like the challenge of trying to build this culture of integrity and, um, helping the organization find its way up this mountain of risk that it's traversing, you know, um, when did you, you know, how, let's kind of talk a little bit about how you got into this game, because I'm sure you weren't thinking about being a compliance officer when you were a little kid, but here you are now being a compliance, you know, compliance executive for the stars kind of. <laughs> I would, that'd be great. Um, so, so as a registered nurse, uh, I was an ICU and ER nurse, uh, for many years and, um, and decided that I wanted to go to law school, which was an interesting uh, shift for for me. Um, part of it, I wanted to get into medical malpractice defense work, and um, because I was seeing a lot of doctors and hospitals being sued, and the profession was it was really bothering me that that there was this kind of thing out there that I needed to protect. Went to law school at night and worked during the day. Um, and about my last year, and I had multiple jobs throughout law school, risk manager, worked at law firms as legal nurse consultant, and as well as continued nursing. Um, and then I had a friend of mine email me um, back in early 2000s, and she was the assistant uh, general counsel for a uh, two-hospital system in Dallas. And she had worked with her at a law firm, and she's like, hey, Ross, would you like to become our compliance officer? And as she's like, hey, you know, yeah, if you want to do this, you're going to be an RNJD here in a few months. And as I'm talking to her on the phone, I'm like, absolutely, that'd be the greatest thing ever. And I'm like typing out in, in Yahoo or whatever it was back then, uh, what is a compliance officer, <laughs> right? As I'm researching this. Um, and I'm like, that sounds fabulous. I love this. I love rules and regulations. I'm in law school. This is a great thing. And I got the job. And from there on, and they had a corporate integrity agreement, believe it or not. So it's like I walked into a corporate integrity agreement as the compliance officer. And I always tell this story too, because I was a nurse, right? I didn't really have office skills. <laughs> Phone rang, someone answered it. We picked it up. We'd go do our stuff. We'd save lives. I was an ICU nurse. So I get to my desk and I'm sitting there and this red light is blinking on my desk and I was driving me insane. And I just message on my computer. I can't figure out how to do it. A week later, I'd push it. If I finally figured it out, it's the office of the inspector general who are coming for a site visit based on our CIA in like two weeks. And I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And so, <laughs> so you want to talk about like baptism by fire. I, that was exactly what it is. And then I just uh, continued on through uh, moving up to national programs and and became compliance officers uh, over uh, Envision Healthcare, which had, um, before that, it was Merchant Medical Services Corporation. Um, but we had physician practice management groups. We had ambulance companies. We had surgical centers. We had um, uh, home health and hospice. And so we just had this plethora of different things that I could learn and I could really understand of what aspects of, of healthcare that we were involved. And so, so that was the really important thing for me was, was really expanding and being part of this, this organization that, that allowed me to do so many different things and learn so many different uh, specialties as a compliance officer. And actually, I, I uh, was executive vice president for performance improvement of one of the, the MSOs, the, the management services company. So I stepped out of compliance for about two and a half years and helped with operations and how to how to better operate and then came back per the dwarves request um, to the compliance program. But I really learned a lot from doing that to how the operation works and how compliance works with the operations and how we need to meld and make things go a little bit better. So that was a that was a lot of help. Uh, being wow. I mean, that's pretty unique, though, for a guy to go from like a compliance uh, role into in, I mean, it was kind of an ops optimization role. 
It was, yeah, it was great. Uh, my former general counsel, who was uh, was a, a tremendous mentor for me, Todd Zimmerman, um, he he moved into the CEO role of the of the practice management group and and is you know needed some help. So I'm like, I, you've been my mentor for a really long time. I'm gonna come join you and do this, and we we did it together. And then then I went back to compliance because they asked me to. <laughs> what do you think he saw in you that he would even? like grant your raised hand? Um, that's a great you know I would. I would love to ask him that question because I don't think I ever have. But um, I, I will tell you that I think that we had such an effective, um, uh, really w- well-oiled machine in the compliance program that, um, that, that really carried a lot of weight to say, hey, by the way, this thing runs really well. And we had corporate integrity agreements. So we had a lot of different things we had to abide by. But it was still like, hey, we ran this thing. It was effective. It was cost effective. It was operational. It did what it needed to say to do. We can take that same mentality and move it to operations to make sure that the business can run the same way that the compliance program did. And I think that's probably where he saw um, saw some potential from that standpoint. And I I often say I can I can do anything, right? I I'm happy to to step in, but I'll be the first one to tell you when when I make mistakes too. So, so I think that's probably what it what it was. So I'm sure you know you said that that was such a great experience and that opened your eyes a lot. Talk to us about that. Talk to me about like what you learned in that in that chapter where you're kind of optimizing the operations for this uh, for this. It was a physician practice practice group or something. Yeah, it was M Care, um, and okay. so the emergency medicine physician practice management group. Like, what were you surprised by? What did you think? You know, always whenever you do something like that, where you're kind of like on a new journey, there's things that you think are going to be layups that are like super hard. There's things that you think are going to be hard that are so easy, and then you walk away with this new, I don't know, this new this the this new experience or this new tool in your toolbox that you can leverage for the next thing that you go back to. You know. Um, you know, I've really realized how hard running operations really was from that perspective and how how much work they really put into to capturing revenue, capturing visits, capturing good quality care and, and make, making sure the patients were taken care of. And there's a lot of work that was that was put into that. And I don't think I really gave it that much credit as a compliance officer. Right. As as and I would say compliance officer back then, because that's kind of where I functioned as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, so I think it really made me as a compliance person, you come back and go, don't do this, just stop, you know, whatever it may be. You don't really understand the yeah, How tough is it? Yeah. Come on, <laughs> just follow the policy. Come on, just do it. Right. Um, and so what I really learned was it's really hard to do that because these, all these other factors are in place and I have goals I have to meet. I got patients we got to see, we got charts we got to get in. We have to, all these things that we have to do and it's not that easy. So that's one is, is it was a very difficult job and made me really appreciate that as a compliance executive on the flip side of it. Um, secondly, there's a lot of inefficiencies, right? <laughs> that was probably the biggest thing that I'm like, Oh my gosh, we how are we even making money on this standpoint? This is crazy. We need to put this process in place so that we can be more efficient and do all these other things. And so I think that was the biggest kind of eye-opener for me was how hard it was, how much other pressures are putting on everybody, and then how many things lacked a good, solid process to be able to function and and work in a in a very effective way. So and how have you carried that experience forward? And how how has that been the foundation for this new sort of you know, compliance executive thing that you are now? I think it really opens the eyes really about what is going on with the operations. And so I spent a lot of time as the compliance officer post that time, listening to the business, listening to the people who are running the business and what their needs are from a compliance perspective and being able to give them what they need to be able to operate. And I think that was a philosophy change for me um, that we take to our clients now, that we take to our business currently. And, um, and, I, and I think that philosophy really resonates with, with companies who want to grow, right? I mean, who just want to yeah. grow. Well, and it probably all, and also that approach probably resonates deeply. Like when you can have some appreciation for the complexities that go along with operations, when operations is where all the people that you want to act in the way you want them to act are housed, 
it probably leads to like a lot more effectiveness as well. Cause you're starting with maybe a little bit more empathy, a little bit more of a listening ear to understand like how we can solve this problem, because it's probably in your mind, you know, it's more complex than you can imagine it to be. It just, it allows for a little bit more of that, uh, you know, below the surface collaboration that leads to the comfortability for someone to bring you in earlier, I would imagine. Absolutely. They really do respect the fact that you listen and you understand the business. And that's what I tell everybody who I'm either mentoring in compliance or even our staff. I'm like, if you don't understand the business that we're supporting, we're not doing the right thing. You've got to understand it. You have to listen to it. You have to be on the staff meetings. You have to understand what the revenue cycle process is. You have to understand everything to be able to guide them in the right direction from a compliance perspective can't just sit back in your corner and go, I'm the compliance officer, let things happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, I agree hundred percent. You got to know the business, but I think if you can also remember that the business is not this monolith, it's a bunch of human beings in all these different departments, you know, it's, it's, it's just a bunch of different departments and all those departments are made up of all these individual human beings applying some personality plus process to achieve whatever that divisional goal is. And you can remember that. I think it then forces you to at least pay some, I don't want to say lip service, but at least some mind service to understanding, well, what is the reality for the the sales team? And what's the reality for, I don't know, this ops team? And what's the, you know, what are they actually doing? What are they actually dealing with every day, every day? Because I don't know, I, every pool I've ever been at has a no running sign and I've run at every pool. Okay. So like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like those rules exist everywhere. Um, but we have to change the behaviors and that's not going to happen through without some kind of persuasion. How do you think, what role do you think persuasion plays in building a great program? Uh, if not persuasion, then influence. Um, I think it's influence and it's also respect. I I think that's really a, a, a key phrase there. When you talk about other departments within a company, whether it's the sales department or operations or whatever it may be, I think that, Um, those individuals who are running them need to respect the compliance executive from the standpoint that they understand that they'll get good advice, that that person is a strategic partner, and they're going to lead them in the right direction and not always be the CF no, right? Um, and, And that's what we don't want to be. And so once you gain that respect, then I think you can influence change. Um, and, and every time you start hammering things and start hammering people and start walking around and beating your chest, you lose a little bit of respect, right? That whole compliance function starts to to go down the notch. So once you actually have built that, that respect, you can build influence and people will start wanting your opinion versus like requiring your opinion. This is going to sound profound, but it's definitely stolen that like, uh, I lose respect if I don't respect you. If you feel that I respect you, then there's going to be that mutual respect. And that's the only thing I can control, right? I I, I can't control whether you respect me. I can control, though, if I respect you or not. And having a little bit of a pausing for a moment to see where that person's coming from or understand it or make that kind of connection, it leads to that respect, which I think you're right. That is probably the formula. It's probably respect, you know, influence, persuade or something like that. But um, that's phenomenal. So, uh, Ross, where can people find you? Uh, I love those little videos you do. You're kind of everywhere lately. I, I'm just loving. Uh, I'm loving the the innovation you're doing to kind of push our our profession forward. It's phenomenal. Well, that's great, I, and I really appreciate you having me on today. It's uh, I love doing this. I love talking compliance. Unfortunately, I don't think everybody loves talking compliance. So, but you do. So I, I appreciate <laughs> the time. Uh, yeah, RonanHC.com is our website, and I'm on LinkedIn uh, under Ronan Healthcare Consultants is a LinkedIn page as well as myself. We do we do uh, put lots of posts out there. Do don't do this. Don't do that. That's one of our favorites. And then the Ron answer um, that we put out, and uh, you know that's. I like to say that that's my philosophy on things that may be right, may be wrong, but it's mine. Uh, and I'll tell you <laughs> what it is from that standpoint of my experience. So yeah, follow us on, on LinkedIn and, and we're on Instagram as well, but I'd uh, love to hear from anybody. And uh, I love just talking compliance. So let me know if anybody has any questions and <laughs> love to love to talk. So keep doing what you're doing, man. It's uh, I feel like we're really getting to this cool tipping point with our profession and uh, the impact that, you know, some folks are starting to make is way bigger than what their predecessors made. And that's really what it's all about. So uh, yeah, man, love your work. Great, great having you on. And we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Thank you so much. Take care.